Well, this week I um, I saw an article posted on uh, Facebook, and uh, someone had posted out there, and so I it was interested in it. It was entitled "Why Do So Many Pastors Leave the Ministry?" So I'm not sure if that was a good thing for me to read or not, but I I chose to read it. It uh, was posted on expastors.com. That is expastors.com. It's really a website of a wounded pastor who wants to minister to men in ministry who have left. And here's the, here's the central core of his article. He said this, It is true that some pastors fall into temptation and yet others simply feel it's time, their time to call it quits. But it often goes much deeper than that. And the stats reveal much. Most pastors are overworked. 90% of pastors report working between 55 and 75 hours per week, and 50% of them feel unable to meet the demands of the job. 70% of the pastors feel grossly underpaid. Most pastors feel unprepared. 90% of them feel that they are inadequately trained to cope with ministry demands. And 90% of pastors say that ministry was completely different than what they thought it would be before they entered the ministry. Many pastors struggle with depression and discouragement. 70% of pastors constantly fight depression and 50% of pastors feel so discouraged that they would leave the ministry if they could, but have no other way of making a living. Wait, he says, this is huge. Let us pause here for a moment. This means that half of the 1,700 or so pastors who leave the ministry each month have no other way of making a living. Their education experience are wrapped up solely in the work of the ministry. So not only do pastors struggle with their choice to leave ministry, they have to worry about how they're going to feed their families. Speaking of families, most pastors' families are negatively impacted. 80% believe pastoral ministry has negatively affected their families. 80% of spouses feel that the pastor is overworked and feel left out and underappreciated by church members. Many pastors are lonely. 70% do not have someone they consider a close friend. And 40% report serious conflict with a parishioner at least once a month. And then there's this. 50% of the ministers starting out will not last five years. Half of the pastors starting out won't last five years. One out of every ten ministers will actually retire some minister in some form. And 4,000 new churches begin each year while 7,000 churches close each year. The statistics speak for themselves. Working in ministry, whether you're a full-time pastor or lay minister, balancing a job in a church can be challenging. Families suffer, discouragement and depression amongst a gamut of other things runs like a river in the lives of those who sacrifice their own life to the cause of the church. And um, just I, I even think about some of my fellow seminary students, and um, you know how it speaks about just how one in five will be in ministry after five years. I don't know if that statistic is quite right. I think it's a little higher than that. It's not a lot higher than that. That's for sure. Uh, one in ten end as a pastor. It's kind of churches chew them up and spit them out, I guess, is what, what happens. In fact, I even have a, a close friend who emailed me this week and I've spoken with him before on the phone and he's in the process of kind of being chewed out of a church and he's looking for another church right now. Uh, just circumstances he's, he's looking right now. Now, you need to know that I'm not in those percentages for the most part. 
Um, it's true, hours are long, but for me, they're delight. They're, they're not a duty or drudgery. It's true, ministry can be discouraging when you pour yourself out to people. Sometimes people respond, that's wonderful. Sometimes people don't respond. And, and many times, you just don't know how effective what you're doing really is, whether your efforts make any difference at all. It's true that pastors are lonely. So I talked with my other pastor friends around the nation that I know. I've spoken with some and I said, well, you know, how many, how many like uh, friends do you have in the family? Like family friends you ha- have over and you're, you just share life with them. And, and I have several pastor friends who don't have any in the church. Their, their close friendships are outside of the church. It makes church a job is what it is. To me, it's very sad. That is not our experience. I mean, you all are our closest friends. We have just given ourselves to you. You've given ourselves to us. That's, that's why it's hard when people leave the church because we're so close and then they leave and it's hard sometimes. And, and that is, but we spend most time with you. And so we are thankful for that. We view us as a big family and for that we are, are thankful. Um, through your generosity, God has met our every need. You have not placed unrealistic expectations on my children. They have grown up having a good church experience. I trust. Yeah, I didn't talk with them before, but they, you know, it, if we didn't say at the end of church, hey guys, time to go home, my kids would stay right here with everyone else. We have to drag them home. And we're like the last ones out of church every Sunday almost. Um, not always, but normally. Just because our, our kids love being here and they love you and I just thank you for what you've done for us and we know that our experience is different than the experience of many pastors and many families. I don't have plans to leave or quit, just just so you know. I feel blessed to be one of your shepherds. I'm a happy pastor. You've filled my life with great joy and I can thank you and thank the Lord for that. Well, the title of my message this morning is Joy in the Ministry. Because that's what Paul is talking about in Philippians chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. He's talking about his joy. He's talking about the joy of the ministry. In fact, I want to just read them for you now. I'm going to pick it up mid-thought. All right, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to catch the context. But mid-thought, verse 16, holding fast the word of life. That is Philippians. This is how you ought to live in a blameless life. Holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ... I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Well, here in these three verses, the word joy or rejoice, which is rejoice is the verb. Joy is the noun occurs four times in these verses, twice in verse 17, you can see it there. But even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and I share my joy with you all. Verse 18, you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. And although verse 16 doesn't use the word joy, it uses the word um, boast or glory. The ESV says, proud, I will be proud. The NIV says that I may boast. But the King James, the New King James, it's interesting. They, they translate this word, which is properly best translated, probably boast or glory. 
But they translate it with the word rejoice because that means the same thing. That I may rejoice. Just, just here's, a, here's a, a man, Paul, he's just talking about his joy in the ministry. They're filled with Paul's experience. Now, it's not that everything's so wonderful in the ministry. That's why pastors quit. They quit because it's difficult and painful at times. And in fact, Paul in our text talks about some of the difficulty. Look at verse 17. He talks about being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. And we'll see later that being poured out as a drink offering isn't a good thing. It's a very painful, difficult thing. And yet it is here that Paul has joy in the ministry. It comes bounding through this text. Many times he's talking about it. And, and I was thinking about ministry. I think ministry is like, like a rose. That if you look at it, it's pretty. If you put your nose to it, it smells nice. So also does the ministry have its sweet moments. There are times when things are going well and people are united, people growing in Christ, church growing. It's a wonderful it's a wonderful experience. But roses have thorns as well. And if one grabs you just right, you'll find blood upon your finger. And so likewise, does ministry have its thorns as well? People can poke you and people can snag you both inside the church and outside the church and your flesh is always a tug. But there's joy in the ministry and there's joy when you rejoice in the gospel. I don't know if I have a phrase. There it is. How appropriate is Paul's example here of his life's perspective of ministry. He says there's joy in the ministry because it's all book about joy. And his joy in the ministry comes only because he rejoices in the gospel. That's what Paul is doing. Now, lest you think this morning that this message is not applicable to you, you say, hey, Steve, well, you're in the ministry, but I'm not in the ministry. Um, let me just tell you, this is very applicable to you because some of a pastor's joy is caught up in the obedience of the church body. The joy of a pastor is predicated upon oftentimes how people respond to him. Hebrews 13:17 says this, obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. And let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. In other words, there's this symbiotic relationship between pastors and their congregations. They rub off on each other. If a pastor is joyful, the congregation reaps rewards. If the pastor is discouraged and depressed and filled with sorrow, the congregation likewise would be negatively affected. And the congregation can help, either positively or negatively. If they submit and obey and, and cause his leadership to be a joy, they, they fill his heart with joy and then they reap the benefits of that. But if they refuse, always resist leadership, they can fill the pastor with discouragement and sadness and that only then disseminates into the church. And that, frankly, is how why pastors leave because they get discouraged and the congregation feels that and then it's back and forth and it's this war and it just keeps going down and down. I'm discouraged. Well, you're not happy. I'm not submitting and it just keeps going down. And so this morning as we look at Paul's joy, know that you can be a blessing as well to do what you can do to have a, a joyful pastor. And you can see it there. And the first point here, we talk about what makes a, a joyful ministry. Joy in the ministry comes when you see spiritual fruit. Verse 16. 
Verse 16, Paul says this, Holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Now this picks up in the middle of a sentence, and really you need to go back. Um, really to go back to Philippians 1.1, 1, 1. but we'll just go back to chapter 2, verse 12, right after speaking of the great humiliation of Christ, the great exaltation of Christ, he says, so then, this is how we ought to live, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Notice he doesn't say work for your salvation. That was all accomplished at the cross of Christ. He says to work it out. That is to, to work. Take pains. Make great effort in your walk with Christ. In other words, work at your sanctification. Work at understanding how the Gospel's impact in your life and how it, how it works itself out. That's really what chapter 1, verse 27 is about. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the Gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you. You're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Right? There's the gospel that has saved you. You've believed in Christ. He's forgiven you your sins. And now I need to walk worthy of that. How do I walk worthy of that? I work out my salvation with fear and trembling. I work hard. I fear and I tremble. Why? Because it is God who is at work in us both to will and to work for His good pleasure. It's ultimately dependent upon God. And so we labor strong and hard. You remember, and I said, we labor strong and hard because it's God who's the one who's going to help us in that process. It's not me doing my part, God doing His part, meeting in the middle. It's me doing my part and God carrying me along. Pushing me along. And a life that's worthy of the Gospel is united. Chapter 1, verse 27. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. It's a humble life. Chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And we ought to work hard at these things. And I just say this, there's no other cause worthy of our dedication and devotion than the Gospel. Now, last week we saw the first way that Paul gives us of how it is that we should work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And he, he says to those in Philippi, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And I mentioned last week how surprising that is because of all the practical counsel that Paul could give regarding working out our salvation with fear and trembling, the very first thing he talks about is whining. Kids, did you say goodbye to whining this week in your home? You remember the tune? Say goodbye to whining, right? Maybe you ordered the watch this week. I don't know. That, that would be okay. But surprising that, that that would be the thing he talked about. And I just say, if you missed my message from last week, get a CD, listen to it on the internet, whatever. I've had, heard many people talk about, wow, that was, that was reorienting to my life of how it is, what I talk about. If we're supposed to do, verse 14, all things without grumbling or complaining. Because the world in which we live is a complaining world. And when we refuse to complain, we'll stand out. Others will take notice of us. And that's Paul's point here in verse 15. So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before men. And one of the ways you can let it shine is by not whining. People will notice that. 
just as much as they will notice when Christians love one another genuinely from the heart. They will notice when you don't whine and complain. But you say, how do I do this? I mean, there's so much complaining all around me. Steve, how can I possibly not complain? I live with a complainer. I work with a complainer. All around me are complainers. How do I do that? Well, that comes from verse 16, which is this participle. Holding fast the word of life. The only way that you'll free yourself from complaint is to hold fast the word of God. Let the Word of God shape you and mold you and give your attitudes and perspectives. You will search in vain in the Bible for complaint. That's encouraged righteous behavior. There are some complaining that's wrong and God hates it because basically it's dishonoring and dissatisfying to Him. But, but listen, if you let, watch television, let television shape you and your mindset and your attitudes, you'll be a complainer. If you surf your secular internet sites and the, the things that you're most interested in, whatever that may be, and you let them shape you, you'll be a complainer. If you read the newspaper and print and online and let the media let, let the media shape you, you will be a complainer. If you let your non-Christian co-workers and your neighbors and your non-Christian family members shape you, You'll be a complainer. The only way to overcome grumbling and a complaining spirit is if God's Word have its effect upon your life. And my wife is, is reading a book with some of you ladies in church. I just kind of formed just a little book reading little thing that they're doing. And it's called Choosing Gratitude. She was talking with me about this yesterday. And it, it hits perfect. Right what we're talking about. And uh, Nancy Lee DeMoss Choosing gratitude speaks about um, what Paul Tripp spoke about, about a trip to India. He said, passing through New Delhi in one of the most horrible slums in the world, Paul Tripp stood transfixed before a three-year-old boy leaning against a cot of his ailing, perhaps dying mother. The boy's eyes were hollow, his stomach distended, his face fly-infested, the very picture of massive, helpless, noxious poverty. The tears that streamed down Paul's cheeks in observing this tragedy were indeed the heartfelt evidence of his compassion. He longed to sweep this boy and his mother into his arms away from these dreaded depths of sorrow and endless need. But it was more than mere compassion he felt. It was an awareness that neither he nor this little boy had chosen the, their circumstances in life. The blessings of being raised among plenty, nurtured by godly parents, Educated in quality schools and given over to Christ at a young age began to roll over him in waves, even as he did his best to comfort and console the needy pair before him. You cannot explain the difference between that little boy and me by anything other than the Lord, he wrote. Standing there in that slum, I felt all the complaints I had ever spoken as if they were a weight on my shoulders. I was filled with deeper gratitude than I think that I have ever felt in my life. Well, not long after he arrived back home, Paul was visiting with a church leader from India who'd come to the States to study. And in the midst of their conversation, he asked the man what he thought of Americans, to which this guest responded in polite Asian style. I can do my Asian accent. It won't be very good. But he says, do you want me to be honest? Yes, I do, Paul said. But who could really be ready for this? You have no idea how much you have, the man said. And yet, you always complain. 
And what's the only thing that's going to rid us of a complaining spirit? What's the only thing that's going to just constantly speak truth into our life and remind us of what we have and what we have been saved from and where we would be without Christ? It's only the Word of life. Let me remind you a little bit that that apart from God and His grace to us in Jesus, we'd be on our way to hell paying the just penalty for our sins. And yet by His grace, He's rescued us from our sins and not given us what we deserve. He's given us Christ's righteousness. We'll see that in chapter 3. And so we can stand blameless before the Lord. And I tell you, we are so prone to forget these realities of life. The, the flesh is so strong and the here and now pull us and tug us that we need to remind ourselves every day. We need to hold fast to the truths of the Gospel. And the only way to get rid of that grumbling, complaining spirit is to saturate our minds on the truth of God. To remind ourselves that our God is in the heavens and He does whatever He pleases. Psalm 115, verse 3. We need to remind ourselves that by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight. Try as we might, we're not going to be justified in God's sight. We need to remind ourselves that Christ is the one who redeemed us from the law having become a curse for us. Galatians 3.13 And these things, these truths, should constantly be in our minds. <clears throat> we need to remind ourselves of them. Again, I want to quote from, if i got my book here, yep. <clears throat> I want to quote another, this I guess is promo. Someday you guys will all get to read these stories for yourself. This one is called, uh, I'm working hard. I worked really hard this week. A lot of the pictures trying to figure out where they came from and take some and have SR design some for me and <clears throat> but uh, this one is called, on page 81, Flashcards. When my children were young, we used flashcards to help them memorize math facts. And if our children are slow and struggle with math facts, all of their math will be difficult. But if our children know their math facts well, math will be much easier for them. The Christian life is much the same. There are facts or truths that we need to know very well, believe with confidence, and believe with confidence to live a healthy Christian life. If we are slow or unsure or doubtful in our beliefs of these truths, we will struggle significantly in our walk with Christ. Here are a few facts we need to know. God is our Creator. God is good. We are all sinful. We are under God's wrath because of our sin. Jesus died to absorb God's wrath for those who believe. He rose from the dead to show His victory over sin and death. There's no condemnation for those who believe. And then I close with this question. How well do you know these facts? They ought to be embedded into you. Like John Bunyan who has said, if you poke him and prick him, he would bleed bibline. Right? The Bible would bleed out of him. I think it's no accident that he lived such a strong, victorious Christian life. And I'll say this, the better you know these things, the tighter you have a hold on them, the quicker you can bring them up, up to recall right on, then will help you to live a blameless, complaint-free life when you hold fast the Word. And look at the result Paul said here. Right? Verse 16, holding fast the Word of life so that, that's a, that's a result. That's a, it's a, it's a purpose. It's, a, it's what's going to happen. If you hold fast the word of life, Paul says this, so that in the day of Christ, 
I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. In other words, Paul says this, as you hold fast to the word of life, I will rejoice on the day of Christ when Christ returns and this world is finished and we who have been faithful and to the end receive our reward. It would be a great time for you. It would be a great time for me. right? Because I can rejoice that my, my input into you, it wasn't in vain. It worked and you persevered. And I'll rejoice that day because you held fast. You worked out your salvation fully. But if not the... The opposite is true, right? If you don't hold fast God's Word, you're not working out God's salvation. It may not turn out so well. It may be an indication you're not saved. It may be that many things you've done just burn up. But, but notice here, verse 16 is all future. He's looking forward to the reward when he would join the Philippians in heaven. And Paul will get to see the true impact of all his ministry. And pastors would love to see that now. But he was trusting that his time among them was not in vain. Jonathan Edwards, however, was facing a different outlook. He's probably the greatest American theologian that's ever lived. Pastor of the Congregationalist Church in um, Northampton, Massachusetts. He he began a, a co-pastor with his grandfather in 1727, faithfully served for 23 years in that congregation, but he was forcefully removed in 1750 by a vote of 200 to 23 against him. Now is not the time to get into all the details of the situation, which are always messy in anything like this. But on the surface, there was a doctrinal dispute about who can partake of the Lord's Supper. Solomon Stoddard, uh, Edward's grandfather, was converted in taking the Lord's Supper as an unbeliever. And so he believed, yes, it should be out there and people might be converted as well. Jonathan Edwards looked at 1 Corinthians 11 and said, but you need to examine yourself, take it in a worthy manner. And so Edwards came and said, no, you need to be converted to celebrate the supper. But that was on the surface. But underneath the surface, there were some unconverted people within the congregation who disdained Edwards and his beliefs. So they voted him out, kicked him out. And so Edwards had one last chance. He preached a farewell sermon and basically called his congregation to account for their behavior towards him. He described the day in which congregations and pastors would meet together, all be reunited in front of Jesus. He would say they'd all give account before the great judge of their behavior towards one another and how their relations sit with each other in the world. He said they will gather at the judgment seat of Christ to deal with any controversies that subsisted between them in this world. And he said that they would meet together to receive an eternal sentence and retribution from the judge in the presence of each other according to how their behavior stood in the present state. <clears throat> well, then he gave some admonitions to some different people. He gave some admonitions to the youth. And he gave some admonitions to those who were saved. But his strongest admonition for those who were unsaved. He says this, My parting with you is in some respects, in a peculiar manner, a melancholy parting, inasmuch as I leave you in most melancholy circumstances. Because I leave you in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity, having the wrath of God abiding on you. 
and remaining under condemnation to everlasting misery and destruction. Seeing I must leave you, it would have been a comfortable and happy circumstance of our parting if I had left you in Christ, safe and blessed in that sure refuge and glorious rest in the saints. But it is otherwise. I leave you far off, aliens and strangers, wretched subjects and captives to sin and Satan and prisoners of vindictive justice without Christ and without God in the world. And you hear what he's saying. He's saying that I've been among you 23 years. And there are quite a few converted. In fact, probably the majority of you are unconverted. You've not dealt with me rightly and you will give an account for that. And how I would have loved that, that you all were in Christ and we dealt together well, but we have not dealt together well. Well, there's a day when ultimate justice will take place before the throne of Christ. In effect, Jonathan Edwards is saying this, I labored in vain among you. Sure, it was hard and difficult, much sorrow in his heart. But had he left them under differing circumstances, a thriving, growing congregation, I'm sure his heart would have been filled with joy. The, the sorrow being that he, he would be away from them because he wanted to be with them. But see, that's my point, that there is joy in the ministry when a congregation Responds is growing and walking with Christ and is holding fast the word of life. And when a pastor can see spiritual fruit. And, and, and though these verses here in verse 16, this verse in verse 16 is focused primarily on a future day, we'll stand before Christ and Paul can rejoice at the reward. This verse isn't all about that day. Oh, oh Paul had a hope on that day, but there was plenty about this day that encouraged him greatly. The, the Philippian church was bearing fruit. I mean, do you remember chapter 1? Paul began his epistles sharing the fruit they enjoyed. Chapter 1, verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the Gospel from the first day until now. Paul brings him back to the first time that he was among those in Philippi. They embraced the Gospel. And they committed to it not only in their own lives, not only in their own city, but even abroad. And so that in chapter 4, Paul talks about that once, once I left and went to Thessalonica, you sent a gift for me. In fact, more than once, at least twice you sent a gift to help all my needs. And they had this sharing back and forth in this relationship. And Paul was longing for them. He says in chapter 1, verse 7, I, long, I have you in my heart. Chapter 8, I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And Paul is experiencing joy in the ministry because he's experiencing people who have responded to the Gospel and who are rejoicing in the Gospel. And he can hope and trust and rest and have confidence that in that day of Christ, he's not running in vain. And I know that I see the same things among you. I think of you all as the church in Philippi. There is joy in this ministry. I, 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 I joy and I rejoice in seeing spiritual fruit. In fact, I would say this, that nothing stirs my heart more than to see spiritual fruit in you all. I mean, think about it. That's what I labor for. That's what I think about 24-7. I, I think about your growth and how you're walking more and more in Christ's likeness. And one of the things I particularly love is when things are done like totally apart from me or my initiative, and I, I hear something happen, I'm like, oh, I didn't. That's great. <laughs> because that shows that something's stirring in you to give a heart to, 
to go and help someone else. It doesn't have to be this church program that, that does things. I, I love it when the young people, our church family, take it upon their hearts and say, you know what, I just want to go someplace. I want to make a missions impact. And you talk with families and you stir up yourselves and you, you figure out what you're going to do and where you're going to go. I love that, Grace. I love that about you. I love Becca. She in nursery today, maybe children's church. I love that about her. Just, just wanting to go. I love that my daughter also is right in the process. Just saying, what can I do this summer? What can I do this summer? Well, I can, I can work her, and she wants to go to Eastern Europe with Josiah Venture. Just put in a, an application. Gone for like ten weeks. She's hoping to be gone. Twelve weeks all summer long. Just giving herself to people. I'm like. That stirs my heart more than anything else. And that's just Carissa just stirring within her, just wanting that. I love that. I love it when I hear of people going to someone's home to snow blow their drive because they've got some physical difficulties where they just can't do that. And it's not like that came through the weekly word or some announcement. Just there were relationships happening and someone did that. And I heard about that. And I was like, oh, you do it. You're right. They, they need help. <laughs> I love that. There's just some, some fruit in someone's life. I, I love it when um, I hear of maybe three families going to visit you, Ray, your mother's celebration of life. Five families came. Okay. It's even more. I didn't even know. Right. Uh, I rejoice when you all are doing that. That I, I didn't go. Um, I was working on my sermon, but we had lunch with dinner with them on Monday night just to touch base with them. But I, I'm thankful for you all have such a heart for the hooks that you just get up and go. It, it's not like we said, OK, let's convoy. You guys just all got together and decided. I love seeing that happen. That is the fruit of the gospel in your life. Uh, I love it when I hear people hanging gospel literature on doors. Tom Wheatex has been doing that. Right. Many, many thousands of doors. He's done that. I know Ryan is thinking about stirring to do that too. That's just your, what you're doing. And I just see that as spiritual fruit in your lives. And I love seeing that because it's not like a church program. Something you're really thinking about. Say, how can I do, just do something for Christ? I love it when I hear of just small pockets of Bible study just kind of coming up, which happens often and all over the place. I, I love it when I, I hear of people just talking about Theological issues in a in the right way, or or people talking about um, some Christian book that impacted them. They say, "Wow, this is a this is a book." You know, over the years we've given books to you all, and it's really my joy. Um, had someone come to me recently with uh, the pastor's wife, and uh, just said, "This was a great book. I started. I couldn't put it down." I'm like, "Yeah." Not many of you said that, but I, I, you know, there's where the discouragement comes. I heard, I heard at least one say that was a great book, you know, and that just, you don't have to come. But I'm just saying that from a pastor's perspective, we get that out. We put a lot of books out. And when I hear that, yeah, that book really helped me, that, that was really helpful. That stirs my heart because it means you're taking time to read about it. You're thinking about it. You're talking about it and it's making an impact. I love hearing that. Uh, I love hearing families gathering for family worship. That means the men have taken the responsibility and said, we are going to, in our home, we're going to find a time where we all can get together amidst our busy schedules and sit down and read the Bible together and we're going to pray together. I love hearing of families praying with and for one another. I love that. I love hearing of families reading like that. I love hearing it when people say, yep, well, this past year, 2013, I read through the Bible together. Got an email uh, I'm not sure it was maybe December 31st where um, someone who used to come to our church doesn't and have a good I have a good relationship with him. He said, hey, just want to let you know, 
I just finished reading, da 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 da, and he kind of said the passages he did. And he said, read through the whole Bible this year. Thanks for setting me on the right course. And so we promoted reading through the Bible each year. And, and that, that's encouraging to me. I, I love it when others take upon themselves to memorize Scripture because I know what Scripture is going to do in your heart. And, and I love seeing fruit today because I know that on that day, all those things that God is stirring your heart to do as you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, it will be a day of rejoicing. When congregation meets pastor at the throne of Christ, I know it's for my greater joy. But, but it's, it's, it's not just for that future day. Even Paul prays in chapter 1, 9 through 11. He's praying now for fruit. And this I pray that your love, Philippians, may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Right? Doing what's blameless today so that in that day... You will appear blameless, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. He's praying that fruit would grow today for that final day when pastor and congregation would meet together before Jesus. That's joy in the ministry. That's my first point. My other points will go faster than that, okay? First point, see spiritual fruit. Second point, sacrifice for others. Join the ministry comes when you sacrifice for others. Verse 8, 17. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. Now remember, when Paul wrote this, he's under house arrest in Rome, awaiting trial by Caesar. And that trial can go either way. Either Paul can be set free or he can lose his head on a chopping block. And he didn't know really what totally awaited him. He, he was ready to die for the Gospel though. And I know this because what he said shortly before arriving in Jerusalem where he was arrested and deported to Rome for trial. This is what he said, Acts 21.13. He said, I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. He was just committed for the Gospel's sake to spend and be spent. He had told the, the Philippians earlier, I don't consider my life of any account of myself, but only that I may run the race and complete the course which God has assigned to me. His heart is similar to that of Horatius Bonar who wrote to him, Go labor on, go labor on, spend and be spent. Thy joy to do the Father's will. It is the way the Master went, should not the servant tread it still. That's what Paul was doing. He's following the footsteps of his master. He was following the footsteps of Jesus who said this, if the world hates you, you know that it's hated me before it hated you. If it, they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. John 15, 18 and 20. And they persecuted Jesus. They persecuted him to death on a cross whereby he bore our sins. And they persecuted Paul. In 2 Corinthians 11, he speaks about how he's imprisoned, imprisoned on a number of occasions, how he's beaten on a bunch of occasions, five times receiving from the Jews 39 lashes, three times beaten with rods. In fact, once even he was stoned and left for dead. Lister, I believe. And here in Rome, his life very well may end. And, and so Paul uses this Old Testament imagery to describe his situation. He says, but... Even if I'm being poured out 
as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. The drink offering was that that wine that was poured out upon the the burning flesh of the goat or the bull um, that was being burnt on the altar. You can read about it in Numbers 15. And, and, And the picture is really perfect because the sufferings of Paul were like secondary. They, they weren't of primary importance. It was the bull or the goat that was being burnt. That's the sacrifice. And, and the wine that was poured out as a libation was, was kind of came alongside of that. And, and what a perfect picture that is because Paul wasn't sacrificed for our sins. Jesus was. It was the, the bull that made the atonement. Although it couldn't do that. Forever, Obviously, Hebrews talks about that. But it was the bull. It was the animal that was sacrificed. And yet, nonetheless, Paul was poured out as well. Sacrificed in some ways, just like Jesus being a martyr. Poured out for the faith of those he served and loved. Now, this isn't the only time he used that terminology. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, he said, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering upon the and the time of my departure has come. And so he put those two letters together. Best we can tell is right now when he's writing Philippi, he's under house arrest in Rome. He's going to be released. He'll be released. He does some more travels. But eventually he's captured again. And the second time he's in the maritime prison, which is a big hole in the ground. And that's when he writes Second Timothy chapter 4, the time of my departure has come. But both times he views himself as this, as this wine is being poured out upon the sacrifice, being sacrificed in the dovetails of Jesus. And in chapter 1, even he speaks a little bit about how he's being poured out. In chapter 1, verse 13, he talks about being in prison. In, in uh, chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, he talks about living and dying. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And, and in 23, he begins, chapter 1, verse 23, about, about the struggle he's got. He says, I'm hard pressed from both directions, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, because that's very much better. Yet, he says, to remain on the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Verse 25, convinced to this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. And if you remember when we went through those verses, it was surprising and encouraging that that Paul made his decision about life and death not based upon his own comforts and desires. He made it based upon others, upon the Philippians, what the Philippians needed. His, His preference was to die and be with Christ. And it's better for the Philippians if he stay and remain. And so he says, if it's better for you, I'll stay and I'll remain. He's practicing what he preaches. Remember Philippians 2, 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. And so he's saying this, I'm putting your interest above mine. Head my way, I'd go be with Christ. But your interest says, I'm going to be with you. So he continued on living and suffering in the flesh. So he did. He practiced what he preached. But the the intriguing thing here in chapter 2, verse 17, is that Paul's finding a level of satisfaction or joy of giving himself for the cause of Christ. He says, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. I'm being poured out. Okay, I'm I'm, I'm in the process of dying. I'm being poured out for, for Christ. And yet I rejoice in that. But here's the principle. Joy in the ministry comes when you make sacrifices for others. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. Now, you think about that. It's more blessed to give than to receive. You say, Steve, that makes no sense at all. The giver has the goods, whether it's 
physically, whether it's financially or, or, or whatever. And he gives away his goods to the one who doesn't and the one who doesn't receives and gets the goods or the money or the things or the gift or whatever. And so you say, OK, now who's better that I had this stuff and then I gave it away to someone else? Well, they got the stuff. I don't have it. So you say, well, who's better? Well, the people who've got the stuff. However, that's not how it works in God's way. And you all know this, that the giver receives as well. Oh, it may not be physical. It may not be financial. It, it, it may not even be apparent in any way at all. But Jesus says what the giver receives is more than what the giver gives the giver receives a blessing. Now, it may be financial. Right? Fighter verse this week, for those of you working on that, uh, Proverbs 3, 10, 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth from the first of all your produce, so your vats will be pl- filled with plenty, and your something will overflow with new wine. I need to work on that this week. But it's something about how you, you give, and God's going to bless you. And it may be physically, it may just be a spiritual blessing in your life. but So look at Paul's perspective here. He's, he's not gaining anything. In fact, what he's gaining is his death. He's giving his life and he's finding great blessing in that. He says, even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering, even if I'm, I'm being killed upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, see, I'm being killed for your faith. Remember back in chapter 1 where he says that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known. Most of the brethren trusting the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak. That because of my suffering, profitable things are happening. And he's saying this, because of my suffering, it's for you and for your faith to encourage you. And he says, even if that is the case, he says, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. I'm giving myself totally. And I'm rejoicing. Now, I think it's significant here. Paul is not complaining. He's not complaining about his circumstances. He had reason to complain. Remember last week we talked about his imprisonment in Philippi. He found himself in prison because injustice due to him. Well, the same thing was happening here in Rome. He'd returned to Jerusalem for Pentecost. And when someone spotted him in the temple, Acts 21:28, someone called out and said, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This man, Paul, who preaches to all men everywhere against our, our people and the law and this place. And besides, he's even brought Greeks into the temple has defiled this holy place. None of that was true. All a lie, all slander. They grab him, put him in prison where he's there awaiting a, a trial. He had to be taken by horsemen to Caesarea outside of Jerusalem for his own safety, where he awaited his own trial. He waited several years on these trumped up charges, total injustice done to him. And then he went to Rome and there he sat in Rome. We, we find out for the last two verses of the book of Acts that he sat there at least two years, just waiting and waiting and waiting for some kind of trial. You, you think anybody can wait four years for a trial? When they're trumped up charges and not cry out, injustice, injustice. Paul had every reason to complain, but he didn't. He's merely practicing what he's preaching, right? He's preaching, verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And thereby he's become an example for us. How can you rejoice when things are going bad for you? (laughs) Look at the Apostle Paul. Things are going pretty bad for him. And yet he is rejoicing. 
And here's what I think is significant. Here's where I think this text ties together from last week and this week. That, that rejoicing is the opposite of complaining. You grumble and complain when you find yourself in a bad circumstance. You think, I deserve better. And you grumble at the circumstances you're in. Basically, what you're doing is you're grumbling at the sovereignty of God who's placed you in those circumstances. But praise, on the other hand, is irregardless of your circumstances, but even goes beyond and says, God, you've been gracious and I worship and I magnify you. It's just the opposite. Where the one complains at God, grumbles and says bad things about God, praise says good things about God and exalts himself. And he finds joy, the opposite of complaining. And I think that perhaps answers our question that I posited last week. Why would you go so quickly to complaining and grumbling? Because that's the antithesis of rejoicing and praising and joy. And so in this epistle of joy, that's what's hit first. That's my, my best answer to it. And when the theme of the epistle is rejoice in the gospel, you can't be rejoicing if you're complaining. All right, let's go to my third point. Real fast here, joy in the ministry comes when you see spiritual fruit, when you sacrifice for others, and thirdly, when you share the joy. Verse 18, you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, I'm commanding you, I want you to rejoice. But it's a, a call even beyond that. It's a call to rejoice in the same way way. In other words, this whole text, yes, it speaks a lot about Paul. Yes, it speaks about what ministry is about. Really, in the end, it's about all of us because Paul says, I want all of you to rejoice in the same way, just as I have found this joy in rejoicing here. You don't have to be a full-time missionary. You don't have to be a full-time minister. You don't have to be a pastor or an elder or a deacon. You don't have to have some official capacity in your church or church. To experience the joy of seeing spiritual fruit. To experience the joy of sacrifice for others. And so I just ask you, do, do you know the experience of joy in seeing spiritual fruit in others? Maybe someone you share the gospel with who's come to Christ and continues to grow. There's a joy there that I want to even call it intoxicating. It, it, is, it is exhilarating to know that when, my, when the gospel went out of my lips, it hit someone's ears and they believed and their life now is radically different than their life was before because they've trusted in Christ. And, and to be on that side of it, to see them change, it's like, there is no other greater joy that you have on earth than that. Amen? Those of you who have seen that? There's no greater thing. Maybe some counseling session, right? Where maybe someone else comes and, and asking you for your counsel. They're just kind of in a muck and they can't get out of it. And, and what you say is taken and they're like, boom, there's brightness. And then their life is changed because of some things that you said you helped them with. There, there is no greater joy and delight in that. Uh, I've, I've ministered several occasions, many times like this. So you go and you... You counsel with people or you, you talk with them and you, you open the Bible up to them and you teach them and, and you pour yourself out to them and they, and, and they get it and they grow and they're excited. And what does it do? It, it just thrills your heart 
gives you joy and thanks. That's why I, I love working with the kids at Kids Club. I just love working with those guys because they're so open. And I do believe that I'm changing their lives. <clears throat> we'll see. I wish I could see in the end whether I'm running in vain in that ministry or whether I'm not. But when you have an opportunity and you see people growing and taking what you're saying, it's exhilarating. There is joy in that when you see spiritual fruit. Now, maybe it's as simple as you teaching your children and seeing spiritual fruit in your children. Seeing your child, him or her, develop an appetite for spiritual things. There's no greater joy than that. Hannah, SR, there's no greater joy than that. Stephanie, to see you taking what the Bible says and believing it and then following on. There's no greater joy. It's 3 John 4. I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. And your joy, parents, that ought to govern like, like all your parenting. I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. I know I've told you this before, but aim for your children at 35 in a, in a home bringing up children in the way of Christ and serving Jesus. That will make you far happier than any riches and successes that they might have. That's where the joy is. How about this? Do you know your, the sacrifice, the joy of sacrifice for others? Do you ever stretch yourself? Like, serve others when it's not convenient? Or do you always serve at your convenience? Do you ever, do you ever place yourself in a difficult circumstance? Oh, I'm not sure I have time for that. Or I'm not sure this is quite right, but I'm, I'm just so strong. Can I do this? And I would say this, you're sacrificing for others. And I can't tell you how many countless times I've gone to sacrifice for others, feeling like, oh, I don't, I don't know if I could do that. I'm just so buried. I'm so overwhelmed. I'm not sure. But every time you met with people and when they respond, then you go home like, oh, I'm really glad I did that. I, uh, there's a joy and a happiness that I have as I've poured myself out for other people. That's what ministry is about. And you all can know that. I just encourage you, stretch yourself and see God bring the blessing in your life. So verse 17 is talking about. Well, verse 18 is about, is about sharing this joy. And I so want to share this joy with you. I want this to be my life. I want this to be your life. I want this to be the life of the church where we're all encouraging each other with joy and I have this vision of this, of this church where we would be sacrificing and pouring ourselves out for each other. And that, that we would, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And so we're all giving. And so we're all receiving this great, great blessing. And, and that we would be a happy church. That we would find our joy and our happiness in the spiritual fruit and the lives of others. That we would find joy and happiness in totally sacrificing ourselves for other people. And that we would share this joy all around. And we'd have this big, happy church as we seek to enjoy enjoy His grace and we seek to extend His glory and no pastor in his right mind would ever leave that church. Let's pray. Lord, this is a, uh, just a great example of the Apostle Paul. I pray You'd burn it deep into our hearts that we indeed, O oh Lord, would seek for spiritual fruit not only here and now but eternally. I just look forward to the day, O oh Lord, when standing before Jesus, having an opportunity to give testimony to the joy that each and every one of these dear people have given me in this life here upon earth. God, that would be a joyous time for me and to, to rejoice in the ways that they have grown in grace, 
Let's rejoice in the ways that they have rejoiced in the gospel and it has, has brought, them, brought them through, even through difficult times, to show that they are your child. Lord, I thank you for what you have shown me in terms of sacrificing for others and the joy that gives me. And I pray that that would give a joy to other people here, that we would be known for just that overextending giving of ourselves in love that can only be explained because we're rejoicing in the gospel. Lord, I pray that this joy would be shared among all of us. Lord, that you would delight, God, to work a work among us that it would stir our hearts that, that this church assembly and gathering and body would be a place where we find our strength and our nourishment and our, our happiness. There's so much in the world to discourage us. God, but that this place would be a place of refuge, a place of strengthening, and a place where, God, we long to be, where we have to be torn away God, because we long to be with each other because of the joy that rubs off on each other. God, really, it, it is your work. God, you, you've, you've got to do this. That's why I preach with fear and trembling. That's why we work with fear and trembling, knowing, O oh Lord, that it's you who do that work. And so I'm pleading, God, right now, that you would come and do that work among us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.